Hi, welcome to Grace Intersect. The goal of this podcast is to help us have an increasingly clear understanding of grace. My name is Jerry Moldenhauer. Thank you for joining us today. My wife Paula and I had an interesting discussion at breakfast the other morning. I threw out a thought about spending just five minutes in any historical setting of 100 years ago or more. You wouldn't be an active participant, but an observer present with whomever you chose. Paula is an engaging social type person and was a bit frustrated by the constraints in this approach. She would much rather have been an active participant, like attending a ball described in one of the Jane Austen books. To actually be able to dance with a tall, dark, handsome duke in the splendor of royal social trappings. Short of being actively involved, Paula's thoughts went to various times when Jesus interacted with people. For her and me, there would be a lot of five-minute selections from the life of Jesus. But that was too easy. What about non-biblical history? What historical moment from over 100 years ago is hitting you right now? Where and with whom would you like to be for just five minutes? Since, if you're a Christian, there would be many during the time of Jesus, what about non-biblical history? Paula came up with a moment in history that would resonate with any creative artistic type. Even I caught a glimpse of the profound emotion of the moment as she described her thought. She said she would love to be in the Sistine Chapel with Michelangelo as he put the last brush stroke on his ceiling painting. Can you even imagine that moment? A little research suggests that the last fresco painted, called Separation of Light from Darkness, was completed in one day. After four years of neck-breaking effort, apparently he stood on a 60-foot-high scaffold, looking up, standing the whole time. What was it like to do the very last brushstroke? What was his facial expression? Did he say anything? Did he pause to ponder his achievement? We can only guess. Michelangelo was a devoted Christian. All of his works were a passionate testament to and an honor for his God. He spoke eloquently of his appreciation for God's accepting love for him. I wonder if the last fresco wasn't an ultimate summary of how he saw God at work from the beginning of creation to his own spiritual recreation of God's light in his life. The non-biblical historical moment I reflected on was one that millions have experienced. However, it is more personal when it relates to one's own family. What would it have been like, in the very early 1900s, to have spent several days crossing the Atlantic Ocean from Europe and to finally set foot on United States of America soil? On both my father and mother's side, my grandparents came from Europe just after 1900. This isn't something done on a whim. Dreaming financial savings, navigating the responses of family and friends, departure planning, destination planning, all of the mental and emotional energy, so much uncertainty regarding the process, arrival, and post-arrival. What was it like to actually step off the ship onto the solid land of your new home? Doesn't seem like it would have been a casual occasion. I don't remember my granddad's at all, and only have brief memories of my grandmother's. I don't know what their mental or emotional makeup was like, what their personalities were like, how they handled unexpected challenges. Regardless of all that, it seems like the first foot on U.S. soil would be very meaningful. On my dad's side, my grandparents were already married and had three or four children. They planned, organized, and traveled as a family. Maybe their arrival was one of relief more than anything. You know, are we there yet? 
Their initial destination was Idaho, and within a short time they finally settled in North Dakota. On Mom's side, it's quite interesting. My grandpa came over as a single man. First settling in Iowa, he later homesteaded in North Dakota, about 150 miles north of where my dad would grow up. He owned a couple of quarters of farmland and had a friend, also from Europe, as his main farmhand. This friend had a sister, still in Europe, who he wrote to and recommended that she come over to marry my grandfather. So, at the age of 21, my future grandmother came over in the spring and ended up marrying my grandfather, aged 47, that fall. What an adventure for each of them, moving to a new country with a new language, customs, weather, and so much more. Did that first step off the ship bring a smile, a verbal exclamation, a sense of trepidation? I would love to have been a very close observer of how my ancestors just over 100 years ago responded to that exact moment. It's easy to project my life experiences on them, but much has changed since then. Even seeing it firsthand for five minutes may not allow me to have a sense of the authentic experience they had. A five-minute historical observation in the time of Jesus would even be more difficult to comprehend with authenticity. The Jewish culture of the time, the mix of Roman influence, the impact of religious training, the setting would be quite a challenge to understand with any degree of accuracy, but I would sure love to try. With all of that in mind, what would it have been like when Jesus, having already gotten a bit of a reputation as a spiritual leader and physical healer, and having been away from his hometown for probably a year, comes home and makes a splash at the local church of his youth. The churches were called synagogues in the Jewish religion. Here is the setting. Nazareth was a small village where probably everyone knew each other and each other's business. If you've lived in a small town, you know what that's like. Jesus had been visiting several cities throughout Israel doing Jesus' kind of things. You know, teaching, healing, partying. He decides to go back to visit Nazareth, his home, where he grew up. This was a place where people knew him and his family. They knew the rumors that Mary was pregnant before she married Joseph. They knew how he grew up as a carpenter's kid and how he interacted with them growing up into adulthood. Now Jesus was back in town. It may have been related to a very special time in the Jewish calendar that came along only twice a century. In the Jewish religion, their weekly worship day was Saturday, called the Sabbath. They called it their day of rest. Throughout the year are a number of additional special celebration days. Then, every seven years was a sabbatical year. Finally, every 50th year, following a cycle of seven sabbatical years, was the year of Jubilee. The name gives it away, right? This was to be a year of rest. During this year, they didn't even work the land. The land was to rest also. The people would live off whatever grew on its own that year. They were to trust God to provide since he set up the system. The year of Jubilee was also a time when slaves would be freed. All debts would be canceled, and property would be returned to the original owners. Quite a moral and economic system, don't you think? Jubilee sounds like the right name for it. All of this background is helpful in understanding why Jesus did what he did when he attended the weekly Sabbath worship at the old hometown synagogue. This occasion is written about in one of his biographies. The writer was one of his followers who was a respected doctor named Luke. In chapter 4, Luke explains that on this particular Sabbath, Jesus went to the synagogue as was customary for him. Part of the worship included people reading from what we now call the Old Testament. 
Obviously, there was no New Testament until after Jesus resurrected. Jesus stood to be one of the readers and was handed a scroll of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah lived and wrote about 700 years before Jesus. Okay, this is the part where I would like to have been sitting in direct eyesight of Jesus as well as a few of those around him. They had no idea what was coming. They thought they knew who Jesus was, but they were about to get the shock of their lives. Jesus unrolled the scroll to a specific place where the following was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that the captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. So far, so good. Most, if not all, were familiar with that part of the book of Isaiah. At the end of this reading, Jesus rolls the scroll back up, hands it back to the one who gave it to him, and then sat down. Here's where it really gets interesting. Luke then says, after Jesus sat down, all the eyes of those in the synagogue were intently on him. Why? Was it what he read? How he read it? What were they thinking? Something caught their attention. I would love to see what it was. Jesus noticed it too. Was there a time of awkward silence? Or maybe not awkward, just silence of bewilderment or wonder. Jesus responded to the moment by speaking to them. Not much of what he said at that point is recorded, but what was recorded was sufficient. Jesus told them, Was he still sitting or did he stand? Jesus began his speaking with this, The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Wow, just wow, what a moment. This is heart-pounding kind of stuff. They had been taught that a Messiah would come. They knew this scripture was a prophecy of that promise. Here he was, right in front of them, claiming it for himself. That takes some on-the-spot, heavy-duty processing. Apparently, whatever else he said was pretty good. Luke records that afterwards the people spoke well of him and even admiring his gracious words. But they still had to process his claim of being the Messiah. They knew Jesus physically, but they didn't understand him spiritually. While Jesus certainly did heal the blind and set free those captive by demons, the good news he brought was for our spirits, graciously making spiritual freedom available to all of us who are imperfect. Then, as now, not everyone processes at the same speed or comes to the same conclusion. At some point later, those questioning his messiahship just couldn't get it out of their minds that they knew he was the son of Joseph. They knew him as a human, but not as a spirit, and they couldn't connect the two. Unfortunately, the attitude of some questioning Jesus seems to be that there would be nothing he could do that would prove to them he was the messiah. Their minds seemed to be made up. They were looking for reasons or excuses to not believe his claims. Jesus understood their struggle because of him being a hometown boy and they've known him his whole life. But that wasn't reason enough to discard his life of general good, specific miracles, and fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies they knew about. Interestingly, Jesus then let them know that he would also be sharing his good news with Gentiles or non-Jews. Some of them became so agitated... Perhaps they were spiritually intimidated. They threatened him with harm, wanting to throw him off a nearby cliff. Jesus then left Nazareth for another city. Okay, so this would have been more than a five-minute time span. 
I think I would have been so riveted that time wouldn't have been relevant. So much can be said about this adventure of the mind, emotion, and spirit. Hopefully, you've made some important connections for yourself. For the purpose of this episode, it is especially meaningful to see that the Old Testament refers to what we now call the New Testament. Here is a situation where the Old Testament literally previewed the New Testament. Actually, there are many such places in the Bible. It's as if God knew what was coming. He did. From the Old Testament perspective, there would come a time when the Messiah would make his appearance. When he did, this would change everything. It would make the Old Testament, well, old. The Messiah would usher in the new. So the New Testament time was prophesied in the Old Testament by various prophets. One of them, Jeremiah, over 600 years before Jesus, was inspired by God to say, The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I loved them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Another prophet, Ezekiel, over 500 years before Jesus, spoke God's word regarding the new covenant time when he said, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. So, what Jesus read from Isaiah that Sabbath in Nazareth directly correlates to what God told other Old Testament prophets. There would be a new covenant in the coming of the Messiah. Jesus was the Messiah for the Jews and the Savior for the Gentiles. In reading the prophecies of the Old Testament about the coming New Testament, it's obvious why people would be looking forward to the new. Those 600 laws were too great a burden to observe perfectly. As Jesus said in his reading from Isaiah, there is good news for the poor, good news for the captives, good news for the oppressed. God's favor has come in the person of Jesus. Accepting that good news, God gives us a new heart and spirit and communicates spiritually with us. He is making it possible for us to have an eternal, intimate love relationship with him. While the writers of the Old Testament previewed the New Testament hundreds of years before Jesus, the writers of the New Testament wrote their books within 60 years of the resurrection of Jesus. They wrote much about the contrast between the Old and New Testaments. In earlier episodes of Grace Intersect, I detailed how the truth of the second letter to the Corinthians finally penetrated my religious programming, my blindness. That scripture tears down the most sacred of sacred cows for those who hold to the necessity of observing the Ten Commandments as a means for spiritual relationship with Jesus. Once that happened, other New Testament writings became more clear and powerful for me. The New Testament book of Hebrews, written about 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus, was written to the Jews in particular. However, those of us who saw God as much as possible with an Old Testament perspective Well, we could relate. Listen to how this book starts. Long ago, God spoke many times and many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. God promised everything to the son as an inheritance, and through the son, he created the universe. The son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. And he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. 
When he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God of heaven. That is breathtakingly beautiful. That needs to be read slowly and frequently to even begin to absorb the content and meaning. Feel free to pause the podcast to ponder that. In chapter 2, the author explains why Jesus came to earth. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. Later in chapter 4, he speaks of the great rest God has for us. For this good news, that God has prepared this rest, has been announced to us just as it was to them, but it did them no good because they didn't share the faith of those who listened to God. For only we who believe can enter his rest. The writer of Hebrews assures us in chapter 6 that we can trust and hope in God because God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. In chapter 7, the writer shows how the Old Testament system of priests was inadequate, but now Jesus is our priest, and his priesthood is far superior to any other. Yes, the old requirement about the priesthood was set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law never made anything perfect. But now we have confidence in a better hope, through which we can draw near to God. This new system was established with a solemn oath. Aaron's descendants became priests without such an oath. But there was an oath regarding Jesus. For God said to him, The Lord has taken an oath and will not break his vow. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus is the one who guarantees this better covenant with God. There were many priests under the old system, for death prevented them from remaining in office. But because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Therefore he is able, once and forever, to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. He is the kind of high priest we need because he is holy and blameless, unstained by sin. He has been set apart from sinners and has been given the highest place of honor in heaven. Unlike those other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices every day. They did this for their own sins first and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus did this once for all when he offered himself as the sacrifice for the people's sins. The law appointed high priests who were limited by human weaknesses. But after the law was given, God appointed his son with an oath and his son has been made the perfect high priest forever. I know it seems like we're just going through an extensive reading of Hebrews here, but if you follow the thoughts, I think you will see how the author comprehensively explains how the Old and New Testaments or covenants contrast. Chapter 8 shows this by referring to the prophet Jeremiah we referenced earlier. But now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood. For he is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant with God based on better promises. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second covenant to replace it. But when God found fault with the people, he said, and then he quotes Jeremiah about the new covenant, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. Following the quote from Jeremiah, he closes chapter 8 with this thought. When God speaks of a new covenant, it means he has made the first one obsolete. It is now out of date and will soon disappear. 
There is continuity throughout the Christian Bible. From the very beginning, God has been clear that He created humans for relationship with Him. Even when humans made choices that corrupted their perfection, God still pursued His human creation for relationship. It's obvious that God's idea of relationship is one of perfect, loving intimacy. That isn't possible without humans getting help from beyond themselves. Graciously, Jesus stepped into the scene by eradicating the old system of relating to God and paving a new way, a way that only He can guarantee will be sufficient and permanent. There is much more the New Testament has to say about the Old Testament. We will address more of that in the next episode of Grace Intersect. Thank you for listening today. My name is Jerry Moldenhauer, and this is the Grace Intersect podcast. As we process grace together, please know your thoughts and or questions are always welcome. Comments may be made at the graceintersect.com website or by emailing comments at graceintersect.com. Have a great day.